So about 20 years ago, I had a student uh, in RUF give me a book called The Sunflower by Simon Weisenthal. Uh, the book is about uh, the, the fact that Weisenthal was a prisoner of war in a, uh, a Jewish uh, concentration camp during World War II. Well, one day he was pulled from his regular work detail by an SS officer so that he could do some work in a local hospital. Well, while he was cleaning up one of the rooms in the hospital, a soldier was wheeled in who was badly injured from chemical burns. There was no way, Weisenthal thought, that this Nazi soldier was going to make it in the end. But in all of the soldier's agony, he could still actually speak. And all of a sudden, the soldier began to beg Weisenthal over to his bedside because he had a story to tell him. Well, the soldier told a tale that quite honestly is it's, it's, it's so horrific, I don't even think I should tell it from this pulpit just for decorum's sake. But suffice to say that the burned soldier had committed an atrocity against a building full of Jewish people that honestly was so sickening in its execution uh, that even he, it had begun to haunt him on his deathbed. So the soldier earnestly looks up at Weisenthal with tears streaming down his charred face and asks him to forgive him for what he's done. Weisenthal said he just froze and he had no idea what to say. But as the man began to wail and sort of his anxiety heightened, the tension eventually got to him and the doctors simply wheeled him away only to have him die just a couple of hours later. Well, when the war was over, the event, it turned out, really haunted Weisenthal as well. Why had he remained silent? What should he have done? So in response to this inner turmoil, he writes this book called The Sunflower. It's a really fascinating read because it ends the first half of the book with his story, but then he poses a question to the reader. What do you think I should have done? Should I have forgiven the man? And the latter half of the book are all these essays that come from all sorts of people, pastors and educators and politicians and rabbis and imams, philosophers, all of which responding to the question of forgiveness. Was it necessary or was it not? It's kind of an interesting thought experiment. What do you think he should have said to the soldier in that moment? You know, last week, Brian walked us through this great cosmic car wreck that we call the fall. And he talked about the fact that death had entered in the world. And we still live in a world that doesn't know what to do with that death. But we find this week in the second half of Genesis 3 that this is equally a God who is there to restore. He offers his people redemption. And while there's no shying away from the inevitable consequences of Adam and Eve's betrayal of God, he does begin to unpack these, these profound hints at a vast program of forgiveness that he's going to bring to bear. Now, why is that important? Well, to the same degree that we don't know what to do with death in our culture, I would argue we don't know what to do with forgiveness either. This week, you know, we find, though, that it is the nature of this God to restore. But the culture around us has less and less an idea of what forgiveness even is in a secular society. And I believe that the effects of that are literally ripping nations apart from the inside out. Because if we don't see the capacity to forgive each other in the face of the world's destruction, then we're only going to see more suffering as we do. So three points this morning to unpack this, this judgment passage that lead us into what I think is a unique Christian perspective on how the world must work if we're ever going to live together. We want to see, first of all, the consequences. 
We want to look at the sacrifice, and then finally some words of application in considering the human condition. Let's take that first one, the consequences. You've got to notice, first of all, that the death that sort of Brian was talking about last week that was introduced now comes to a particular expression. But it's different for each of the parties involved, isn't it? The larger point that I want to make in all this is that while Christianity is a religion of forgiveness, we'll talk about that more in just a moment, it never shrinks back from the truth that consequences are real and often very heartbreaking. Let's look first of all at the serpent. The serpent is cursed in verses 14 and 15. The serpent, of course, is the imagery that gets associated with Satan. Go forward to Revelation 22 and John will refer to the devil as that ancient serpent. There's no need to get confused, and Brian mentioned this last week, that, uh, or, or try to insist that snakes at one point had legs and walked upright, and all of a sudden Satan enters it, and now it has to slither on the ground. That's not what's happening here. The crawling is being used as a symbol for what was, uh, uh, what was going on spiritually. The snake's slithering, in other words, is now a meaning of cursing. It's an illustration for all to see, something which, frankly, still creeps us all out, a slimy snake, right? But the point of the curse is just that. It's cursing. Because everything that God has uttered prior to this point has been blessing. So cursing, we're going to find, is just the opposite of blessing. The reality that humankind is going to live out and live in from this point on, God is saying is upside down from what it was supposed to be. Things won't bring joy. They'll bring pain. Life won't make sense. It'll be confusing. The world is not as it ought to be. But look, don't miss something dramatic that sort of anticipates my next point that's there in verse 15. Because God actually hints at the ultimate destiny of this curse. Someone is coming, he said. He refers to him as the seed of the woman. And he's going to put a final end, a dramatic end, to what Satan's been doing. And even while suffering a fatal strike to his heel himself, scholars call this in chapter 3, verse 15, the first appearance of the gospel in the Bible. From this time on, the story of the Bible, therefore humanity itself, is a story of people that are waiting for something. They're waiting. They're longing. The second thing we see are the consequences that get visited upon the woman. Look at verse 16. For both the man and the woman, you're going to find that the curse actually goes directly to the most dramatic displays of God's blessing in them. Remember that the glory of the woman's womb we talked about in Genesis chapter 2 and how beautiful God instills and how he's going to bring about his plan through the woman's womb. Well, now we find that that very thing of glory is going to be a place of pain and suffering instead of delight and joy. And this whole sacred union that exists between her and Adam well, you know, Adam is reciting poetry about how complete he is when he looks at her. Yeah, all of that desire that's going to be from your husband, but instead of complementarity, uh, thank you, there's going to be subordination. In other words, the inertia of marriage now is going to slouch towards tyranny instead of mutuality. Thirdly, we see the curse on Adam in verse 17 and 19. Adam, again, this whole joy that Adam was supposed to take in his vocation to, to tend the earth and to work it. The delight that, dis, that comes as you discover all these things that God has implanted in the world, these potentialities. And of course, that deep satisfaction that comes from a hard day's work. Now, all of that, instead of joy, is just going to turn hard. And not only that, when you work, what it's going to produce is the opposite of what you want. It's going to be thorns and thistles. 
And of course, looming over all of this is the darkness of verse 19. Look what it says. It says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now what that means is, is there is a constant and persistent specter of death that overshadows everything that we do and potentially ruins everything that we do. Truly, after Genesis 3, paradise has become a nightmare. Now look, remember though, we're looking at this text to try to get hints at why it is a Christian looks at the world the way in which they do. And I can only say here that the Bible does not shrink back from how awful life can be under the curse. The Bible is not a Pollyanna document. It does not teach people to be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. A Christian ought to be the first to look and say, yes, life can be horrible. In my 30 years of ordained ministry, I can tell you that by far the greatest heartbreak of my own career uh, happened about 20 years ago in the death of a student that was involved in our ministry in RUF by the name of Laura Trependall. Laura was killed at the hands of a drunk driver. And even now, 20 years later, I still look back on those times and the decisions that we made as an ordeal, uh, especially the lessons that we had to learn oftentimes the hard way. And there's no question that everybody that was involved in that season of life in our ministry would say that we learned that life is just crushing sometimes. I mean, Laura was a delight, and she was a light of Christian witness to the world. That, frankly, we had to work through why it would make any sense for something like that to happen to her. But we also knew in the midst of it that there was an impulse, a need to forgive. And so we did. Some of us actually made very public statements about our desire to forgive directed at the young man who had taken her life. But as we all sat in Laura's trial up on the courthouse on the square, uh, listening to the judge sentence her killer, the judge said said two things I thought that were profound. She said, first of all, he understood that Laura was two things. Number one, she was a personal friend. She was a beloved daughter of her parents. Yes. But secondly, she also was a citizen of Oxford, Mississippi. And while her friends and her family had been so earnest to express forgiveness to the young man who was responsible for her death, she, he, that man still, though, owed a debt to our community for the loss of her life. And in that light, he sentenced to him. And I remember thinking that was so wise because what he's showing is, is that forgiveness and consequences can exist in the same place. But my premise is now, 20 years on, is that it is uniquely the Christian view of life that can account for that possibility. Alone, because we know what to do with consequences as we see reflected in Genesis chapter 3. And that brings me to the second point, and that is the sacrifice. Look, here you have Adam and Eve, and they're walking around with brand new eyes, are they not? They see the world differently. And the walking death that they are now living is in direct contradiction to what they had at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Remember verse 25, when it said, And the man and his wife were both naked and yet not ashamed. Now, by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 7, it simply says, And they knew they were naked. Okay, from that moment on, through the rest of the Bible, nakedness is a theme for the topic of shame. Shame. Shame is the fear of exposure. Shame is living in a posture of always having something to hide. Shame is the fear that comes with being disconnected from the things that you know you need the most. 
Pain means that vulnerability and the, and the act of being known is always painful. And it's been at the root of humanity's dysfunction from the very beginning. This is the definition of what humankind is going through. So in verse 7, we see them trying to make fig leaf coverings for themselves. And again, I've made this joke before, how ridiculous those fig leaf clothes must have been. But don't you see that that too is a metaphor for the human condition? Humankind is trying to deal with shame and the busyness and, and anxiety of life is really a, a picture of the leaf coverings. We're still trying to cover it with our careers and with our relationships and with our hobbit, hobby, hobbies and habits. In other words, what our leaf coverings become for us is to have made us very highly trained and very committed maskers of our sin. We mask. We wear masks. But God sees it all, right? In my research on this topic, I came across a report out of uh, Switzerland where apparently there is a holiday there known as Faschnacht. And it uh, basically is the Swiss equivalent uh, to Mardi Gras. And if you know anything about Mardi Gras, there's a lot of parades. Uh, the participants dance around wearing nearly nothing, uh, engaged in all sorts of uh, lewd acts of, what, of, of one kind or the other. But every one of them will also wear masks. Well, one particular year, the Salvation Army decided they were going to put up a billboard right on the parade route that everyone could see that read there in German, Gott sieht hin deine Maske. God sees behind your mask. Which is exactly what is happening when God, when God says to them, who told you you were naked? Who introduced this idea to you that you should have something to hide from other people? Who taught you to be afraid of exposure? And so in the midst of all of that, you have one of the most tender parts of the whole passage that you might have missed the significance of in verse 21. Because it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Think about that. Mankind is incapable of clothing himself. And so God comes along and he makes clothing for them. And of course, he doesn't just clothe them in some sort of burlap frock. What he does is he makes them garments made of animal skins. Garments that are permanent. Garments that will cover. Garments that will actually warm when it's cold. Garments that will actually make them able to move forward. But here's the question that hangs over that little verse. How did God get those? How is it that God got the animal skins to cover the ridiculous attempts that they were trying to do to cover their shame. The only answer to that is, is something had to die in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed. And so you now have the most solid clue as to how God is going to lift the curse that it, that's on mankind and the way to deal with their shame. James Montgomery Boyce makes the point that on this occasion, God gave them the seedling form that would be traced throughout the rest of the Bible. Think about it. Suddenly Adam and Eve could walk away and realize that one animal, it was possible for one animal, an innocent substitute, to die for one sinning individual. Later on we would find that a lamb was offered for each family during Passover, the Passover escape from Egypt. One lamb for one family. Even a little later on, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would offer one lamb as atonement for the whole of the nation. Until finally, many thousands of years later, John the Baptist looks and he sees Jesus submitting himself for baptism. And you remember what he says? 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of it is right there in that one simple phrase of how God was going to provide a covering. From now on, from this place forward, this was going to be the way. That was the only way. The sacrifice. So we see the consequences in the sacrifice. Finally, though, look though, look at the human condition in the midst of all this. Because there's one last point to be made before we come to some application in verses 22 and 24. Because do you see God embracing in that whole story of the cherubim and the flaming sword thing? Both of the former points of this sermon. On the one hand, man cannot be allowed back in the garden. This is, again, another picture of man's struggle. Because human beings are born, despite all of our protestations, that man is fundamentally good, that man means well, that society is the one that pushes against them, that in the heart of every human being is a sense of being exiled, of being lost, of alienation, of true, powerful vulnerability. That is the human condition. And generation after generation of humans bears this out. I think this is the explanation for the sometimes low-grade sadness that rests in the heart of the people who are thinking the most about the human condition. The further down you get the trail of what it means to be a human being, the sadder it gets. Why is that? Genesis 3 answers that. And, of course, the cherubim with the flaming sword actually would make another appearance, would he not? In visual form on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, still faithfully guarding the way back into the presence of God. Why? Because now man knows good and evil. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that what that means is, is man has decided that he is going to be the final arbiter between good and evil. And it's that commitment that has cost him everything. That was the end. And yet, the tenor of the text shows that the sword is there for their protection as well, isn't it? The end of verse 22 shows that re-entering the garden and eating from the tree of life would somehow seal these rebels in the midst of their self-destruction. They've already turned into the walking dead, but re-entering the garden would lock them within this zombie life forever. So you see what you have? Even with with the cherubim, you have grace even in the midst of the judgment. And that little phrase is what really moves me, grace and judgment. How is it possible for a society to hold together both of those things? And my answer to that question is, not very easily if you're trying to do it without the mental equipment that only Christianity can give you. Look, put put the question this way. What does a society look like that has lost its ability to forgive? And the answer, I think, isn't just that life is going to be kind of mean sometimes. I think it's far more dangerous than that. Someone who I think has written brilliantly on this is a humanities professor at Baylor University named Alan Jacobs. I want to do a Sunday school class on this one entire quote one day. I'm totally enamored with this. Bear with me for a second. He says, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so. What's he mean by moralistic? Moralistic means this assumption that you can use the rules to fix the world. That if we just kind of keep pounding away at people about doing the right thing, everything will get better. And what he's saying is we tend to think as Christians that when all of a sudden a society forgets what Christianity is about, it's going to be you know, less about rules. Mm-mm. <laughs> it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. 
The great moral crisis of our time, listen to this, the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists because there is no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns because the mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it ever gets better. You see what he's saying? I don't think there's a better description for where we find ourselves because this, this mania for punishment is trying to describe what we know in our day as cancel culture. That's what this is. Mind you, don't, I don't minimize, and neither should you, some of the social ills, the cancer that exists within societies that are being uncovered by cancel culture. I don't resist those. We need to learn those things. But when that's the only part of the story that we have, if that's the only thrust of our story and our struggles to renew culture, we're just going to continue to be sick, even though in a different way. I've read before this quote by Elizabeth Bruning who said, As a society, we have no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person who has done wrong can atone, make amends, and retain some continuity between their life and identity before and after the mistake. And then she adds this little gem at the very end. She goes, This is not sustainable. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> It's not sustainable. And I can't emphasize that enough. Unless there is a vestige of forgiveness, an instinct, or in Bruning's words, a coherent story about how to forgive someone, society is going to crumble. This is the way that wars start. This is how divisions are nurtured and grown. This is how societies fracture and splinter. And it's happening now. Right now. So yeah, I am, we, we should all be zealous to see the message of Christianity get out. But not so much that, so that people can go to heaven when they die, as important as that is. But also so that we don't kill ourselves in the process by spewing more and more hate at each other as we do. It's so a part of me in the end to finish up this, this morning that, to make an appeal to the world just for, through self-preservation. If you think about it, forgiveness is the only way to keep from destroying yourself. I've said this for years. Pain in one's life is going to come out somewhere. Either it's going to be neutralized by the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it is going to seep out into the world and affect your neighborhood and your office and your family, your marriage, and even your own psyche. Your own sense of sanity. Author Lewis Smedes once said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that you were the prisoner. When G. Walker in Liverpool in 2005 declared that she had forgiven the two racist murderers of her 18-year-old son, Anthony, some people in British newspapers actually criticized her. And they said that the murdering scum did not need forgiving. And her reaction, they implied, of wanting to forgive was somehow unnatural and that we should fight that hate with more hate. And when she, when she was asked how she felt about the two young people that had killed her own son, she said, well, what I'd love to do is to do the motherly thing. I'd love to sit down and find out why. What, what's missing from their lives? Crazy, right? In that moment, G. Walker, whoever that is, 
saw these people not as, saw them as people, not just perpetrators. I mean, she, she, she instinctively understood something that she would say she had to learn the hard way, which is the fact that there is also a cost of not forgiving. <laughs> she looks at him, she says, why a life sentence? Why would I live a life sentence? And one, one time she said to the reporters, hate is what killed my son. Why should I be a victim too? Forgiveness is the thing that set her free. And so I think the great question that's hanging over the last half of Genesis 3 is simply this. How can I obtain forgiveness? That is the great question. There is no more profound internal thought that has to take over the soul of every individual in this room than that question. How can I obtain forgiveness? A couple of years ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts called Radio Lab. And they were dealing with something that they had uncovered, which was in the digital world, there were people who had made profound mistakes uh, in public embarrassment. They had been uh, uh, exposed in terrible ways as having done and said terrible things. But they were also in the midst of it, after their time of committing these atrocities, would go back and try to redeem themselves. And so some of them would appeal to these particular newspaper institutions to rid their record, to clean their record, to purge the newspapers of these databases, and even, more especially, the search engines that, you know, were continuing to bring up their dotted past. So it turns out that these particular newspapers had formed committees, literal committees of people that were in charge of what they would call themselves the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten. I used to tell my children when they were growing up, I was like, look, when you put something on the internet, and they would respond afterwards, it's forever, daddy. That's correct. And that's what people were dealing with, the foreverness of these kinds of condemnation. And for lots of people, it's an unending nightmare. So here these committees are, and I thought this was profound to me, that somewhere in an office, there's a group of people sitting around and trying to decide whether someone is worthy to have their record purged. Is this person worthy? I mean, I don't know. Is it worthy to have their name removed? Or maybe, maybe what they did was, was much worse than that. I mean, were they that bad? I mean, maybe do we need to withhold exoneration from them? Good gracious. Somewhere in a room, people arbitrating these decisions. But here's my point this morning. You cannot grapple with that. Whether, you're, whether your particular shame made it onto some headline on an internet page somewhere, or whether it's something that still remains between you and God alone, you have to grapple with this truth that the God of the universe is sitting in a room and he is saying to himself, is this person worthy to have their sins forgotten as well? And this is where Christianity is unique and quite frankly weird because the answer God gives to that question is, no, you are not. But my son is. My son is worthy my son is the only one who, by taking upon himself all of the shame that he had, bore it in himself, and then taking it on, he neutralized it. And he suddenly took out the sting of death itself and opened up the doors so that there could be implanted inside the soul of every single believing person an instinct that I must forgive. I have to forgive. Who am I? to hold these kinds of things against anybody given what he's covered in my shame. 
Who am I to nurture and mull over resentments? Who am I to sit in front of the nightly news night after night while I hear all of my political enemies detailed in all the things that they've done this week and to condemn them? Who am I? That's what God implants in the soul when he suddenly helps us to realize that there is no one worthy to have their sins forgotten except him. And I am in him. And because I am, that's the only pathway I have to not only just my forgiveness, but for us to be able to have forgiveness in the world at all. And because he's forgiven me, I can forgive those around me. And if we don't have that, we are done. We may be marching that way right now. I hope not. But in the end, it'll be a revival of God's people who look up and say, he actually forgot all my sins. And so I can forget yours. Isn't that a glorious vision? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us realize that vision in our own lives, whatever it takes, whatever it means, whatever pathway there is for us. There may even be words of forgiveness that we ought to utter to someone even this morning. But regardless, we pray that you would be at work, that you would move, that you would change, that you would preserve. Hold us together, Father, as we splinter apart. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.